0: back to another episode for this episode I spoke with Bill Schaefer he's a a army vet a former um, army officer who is now running for congress in Iowa's third congressional district without further ado here's my conversation with Bill Schaefer well Bill welcome to the caffeinated thoughts uh, podcast
1: Shane it's a pleasure to be back on caffeinated thoughts again I am looking forward to our discussion
0: Great. So, a question I ask anybody that's running for office, regardless whether they're, they're running for a city uh, city uh, seat, city council position, or on up to when I've interviewed presidential candidates, I I always like to know why a person wants to run for office because it seems to those of us who who uh, look at what candidates have to go through, it's like you gotta be. <laughs> it seems a little crazy that somebody want to voluntarily, you know, do this to themselves.
1: Well, I agree with that completely. I think it is a little crazy and I think most of my family and friends, uh, although they're not surprised I'm doing this, think it's crazy. And and I think the best way for me to tell you why I'm doing this is by starting to say this. I'm really not Uh, Interested in a political career I'm really not interested in living in Washington D.C. again I'm just willing to do it Just like I was willing to go to combat As a soldier for 30 years And the reason that I'm running Is because I found myself last year uh, Complaining about the politics Complaining about what I see as a leftward shift in the country A almost 100 year compromise to the left in our political uh, arena, which has resulted in a push away from the constitutional federal republic we're supposed to have. And as I consider myself to be a problem solver, I looked in the mirror one day and said, you need to stop complaining, and you need to do something about this. And so I quit what I was doing, with permission of my wife, of course, and started running for office. And that's my purpose, is I want to do something about what i and many americans have been complaining about for years
0: okay so you are just tell me tell us a little bit about your background you know what what have you done up until this point in time um just because i'm sure a lot of our listeners you know are not aware of who you
1: are or or uh you know your qualifications yeah so my uh My career is all Army. I I enlisted in the United States Army Reserves in 1981 uh, while I was also attending Reserve Officers training uh, in college, and I was pursuing my my undergraduate degree, and that was all in the infantry, and then I was commissioned as an officer in the United States Army and brought on active duty, and I spent 30 years on active duty, retiring as a colonel in 2014. And when you look at that career in terms of credentials, you know, somebody said to me the other day via Facebook, you know, I, they say it to me, they said to one of my supporters, you know, you know, veteran doesn't give you the right to to an office seat. I 100% agree with that. Nobody has a right to a seat. Right. I have the responsibility to lay out for the people of this district, Iowa's District 3, what my background is and what those credentials are. And my credentials are Army. And so if you see that as the experience that you you would trust in office, then I would appreciate you considering my candidacy. And so as I'll just talk to the last latter part of my career as a senior officer, as a colonel, I commanded at the brigade level, which means it had, you know, upwards of 2000 people working for me. And had the responsibilities for the health for the welfare, the, the finances, everything to do with that organization. And we provided training to 10 or 15,000 guardsmen and reservists who were deploying overseas. In addition to that, I spent two years in the Pentagon, uh, working what's called the Joint Requirements Oversight Council. And what I did was provided training briefings to the to the vice chiefs of staff for all four services. Uh, army services i 'm mm-hmm. sorry for all four services Air Force marines navy and army and and laid out the groundwork for making real time adjustments in what was and what was the forecasted plan and how we would adjust monies in order to uh, initiate new good ideas uh, in addition, I was a operations officer and a chief of staff for a three star general um and that was here in Iowa, and that's what brought me to Iowa.
0: Okay, because you're Rock Island Arsenal, weren't you?
1: Was that I, your... was. I that okay. was? Yeah. So the army brought me to Rock Island Arsenal, which is actually an Illinois address. I just mm-hmm. chose to live in Illinois, okay. I just chose to live in Iowa. Sure. And was was working at the arsenal. So I know I,
0: I, I you probably have been asked this, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. Um, there was an open seat Iowa, you know, second congressional district. Why did you choose to run and you know, move to the 3rd Congressional District rather than run in the 2nd District?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a fair question, and I can understand why, why some islands would, would uh, wonder about that. And, and really, it boils down to this. I spent my entire life in the Army. My father was in the Army. We moved around for my entire life growing up. I got five siblings, four siblings. The five of us were born in five different states. I have three children. They were born in three different states. So you got the idea of the military family. Right. So I was brought to the Quad Cities. My wife and I, when we retired, I was hired by the Army to work for the Army as a civilian for a few more years. So I I was working. And then my wife and I decided that we were going to stay in Iowa. Mm Mm-hmm and retire to Iowa. And that's where we were going to live with our family being spread out from Maryland to Tucson, Arizona. Right. And, and so, you know, uh, we started looking at at, across Iowa and then some very dear friends of ours had uh, moved over to this side of the state, which caused us to look down here. And we decided that we were going to retire over in this side of the state a long time ago, a couple of years ago, two, three years ago. Okay. Uh, so, you know, so you pointed out that that seat was open and I appreciate you pointing that out because you could argue it would have been easier for me to do some things there, but my, my wife and I's plan was always to move over here. And it made sense to me for us to move over here and execute this path.
0: Okay. So you ultimately, you moved to retire here, not, you didn't move to run here. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Just good. Just wanted to clear that up because I know if I didn't ask you, people would probably be giving me some pushback on that. So,
1: um, no, I appreciate I, that clarity because that is that is an absolute fact.
0: Okay. Um, I haven't had a chance to ask other co- candidates because I really haven't had many candidate interviews since this whole COVID-19 pandemic has come through. But what are your thoughts about the federal and the state response um, as well as thoughts Looking in the future, if we end up having another pandemic down the road, because it seems like you know they're happening a little more frequently. So, I just want to just pick your brain. What 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 were your thoughts about the shutdowns and and the res- government response and all that?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm very concerned about the responses. Clearly, wherever the COVID came from, clearly there is a virus out there that's causing problems for folks. Uh, but I hold very strongly that the government uh, does not have the authority, the constitutional authority, to lock people down or shut businesses down. I would have preferred uh, that we stayed in the guidance arena at the government government level, both the federal and the state level, and issued issued guidance and then allowed folks to execute the guidance. And I and I, I got to believe, and our governor has said it a couple times, I got to believe that Iowans will do the right thing and uh, and i thought that we started out pretty strong in iowa with the governor's response but there's a point within the last probably 3 or 4 weeks where even where even here guidance has turned into enforceable guidance and i got to wonder how how much is is guidance when it's enforceable and the restrictions became became even more actual restrictions and and shutdowns of of parks and and other and other things, mm-hmm. um, I you know in, in my own life I've, I've got elderly parents and uh, I don't want them taking the risk because they are in that at risk category. Um, but but here we are, causing folks who aren't really in the big at risk categories to shut down businesses and the long range, the long range impact on our economy to me it pales in comparison to the long range impact on the freedoms that we have acquiesced to the governors of of the states um, okay. across the country so I'm very concerned with that. I really think that uh, it's time to to uh, continue the opening up the economy and not allow this country to move uh, into a economic situation that might not be recoverable
0: okay um As far as how how do you think the federal government could better prepare for future pandemics? Because it seems like we were kind of caught unaware. Uh,
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know. If you listen to all the data, uh, were we we caught unaware or did some people resist the actions that the executive branch tried to take uh, just because they like to argue first? And I think it's reasonable to suggest that there were some some things we have learned, uh, but you know, what what did we know as governors and the, and the federal government and the president and the and the uh, legislators know over the last 10 years that would indicate that they had the information that would have allowed them to prepare better? Now, going forward, I think we've learned a lot here. So there should be preparations made to secure or make it make a pandemic more secure in in the In the future, mm-hmm. um, but I got to talk about the way you asked the question because that 's the way I think a lot of Americans look at all of these problems. They automatically look at what what the federal government 's response is, mm-hmm. and was the federal government prepared and uh, i think if you if you look at the data there 's clearly that some states were not prepared and, and i don 't think right. Iowa was one of them but but it 's clear that some states weren 't prepared so you know, what is the balance between the the responsibility of the federal government and the state government and in my view that would start the federal government would start with the the uh, responsibility to secure Americans from visitors from foreigners mm-hmm. and then the state governors should have the responsibility to be the front line on the resources required to handle a surge of medical issues um and then there's probably a list of a lot of other things and there's probably some overlap uh between the federal government and the state government on resources as well
0: right right i was just thinking of things like uh you know our our national pp or protective personal protective equipment stockpile had been depleted um that i'm not blaming president trump for that Well, at least not entirely i think yeah. Yeah, because I think no, that, I think
1: it's a fair question. But yeah. how many states? Again, how, just ask. I think we just need to ask both questions. What was the stockpiles available in the states? Sure, right. Surely, we don't think the federal government should have a stockpile to fill in every state requirement. No, um, they they should have a stockpile that would allow them to replenish the usage of the stockpiles within the states. I think right. you know it's it's a. It's a similar thought process in the Army when when we're making a plan and we set aside reserve resources, whether it's equipment or people uh, you know those those reserve resources are are never to to be put forward and given to every unit every every smaller unit out in front of you they're there to provide replacements for the unit that gets the hardest hit okay and replenish the supply so it's a strategic way of thinking of looking at thinking at something
0: yeah i obviously i think federal response mainly when it comes to stock stockpiles whether it's ppe or ventilators or anything that fema might have would be yeah definitely look at the hot spots first and and see whether they can help out there because obviously new york city needed more help than iowa did
1: um sure and they needed it faster and that's that's really my point if you're waiting for the federal government to deliver the immediate response in your state i think you're already behind and iowa was not and i'm very proud of that right right
0: so um you know this this issue this pandemic's bringing up other issues like for instance we're here we're you know we're already at a huge our our national debt is huge and we're just adding to it how do you think uh, congress should address the national debt going forward because it seems like nobody republican or democrat's really doing anything to address it.
1: Oh, well, I absolutely agree and and so you you probably know and and many iowans know that I've talked about balancing the budget as part of my platform and I think it's extraordinarily important and I've gotten pushback from that. I've gotten pushback from some some aspects of the party on it uh, and, you know, different folks say, well, that's too hard. You'll never get anybody to agree. Well, you know, we got to stop thinking that way. You know, we, the people have to elect folks who are willing to do hard and not give up because something is too hard or it'll take too long. So that whole little speech was designed to set up my answer. Uh, and, and here, Shane, here's the answer. Uh, we have got, to create an appetite in Washington D.C. with our elected officials, uh, representatives, and senators, to create a balanced budget that's based on the Constitution. And so, you prioritize the things the federal government is supposed to do, supposed to be involved in, based on the, the uh, Constitution. And clearly, clearly, you fund the uh, the Department of Defense, you fund the Department of State, you fund the you fund the um, the uh, Justice Department. And there's probably some others we can we can debate where the list ends. But at some point, with this new lesson learned and lessons learned from the last, you know, 10 or so years of disaster responses, disaster relief, then you create a, uh, you fund, you fund an emergency pot that is based on a forecast of, you know, predictable stuff like the number of fires we have, the number of hurricanes we have, and now the potential for a federal level response to a to a health issue uh, and that gets that has to get funded and then at some point our our elected representatives have to have the ability to say we we have used all of the available funds based on forecasted revenues and therefore these other programs uh don't get funded and shane i would suggest to you if we do that we're going to find that most of the programs that uh, that would fall below that line, mm-hmm. they don't belong at the federal government anyway. And so that's another part of what I want to do is convince folks to move us back toward the constitutional federal republic that we're supposed to be and get the federal government out of our daily lives as much as we can and bring those problems back to where we have an easier time getting a hold of the state-level folks that we've elected. Mm-hmm to uh, solve those problems
0: yeah i'm you know you look at the federal budget uh and most of it is well you got discretionary spending which is uh, really a drop in the bucket compared to well defense spending and and even um what what we see go into what we call entitlement spending social security medicare medicaid how do you – what are some ideas you have for reforming some of the, that entitlement spending, which we'd have to do, I think, to really make a dent on the national debt?
1: Well, you know, I think, uh, uh, first of all, Social Security probably isn't an entitlement because we've all been paying into it. That's but true. But I do think that – but I, but but it does fall into entitlement spending, and I do think that can be reformed. And maybe, uh, you know, while – while, you know, fellows that are uh, 10 years older than me uh, and even my age, you know, late fifties, um, we certainly deserve to get back out of the social security system, what, what was intended. So it needs to be protected. But maybe it is time to look at another means where a 20 year old could opt out of it and not have to pay into it and secure his own, uh, his or her own future. Let's get back to self-reliance. Let's get back to being responsible for yourself. And, and, uh, and then, then it becomes a state problem. The federal government should not, in my view, be involved in the requ- retirement requirements or the welfare requirements for any individual. Uh, those kind of things belong local. They belong in the state. They belong with our local charities and churches and the folks that do that kind of great work. Uh, not confiscation of wealth at the federal level and then and then redistributed. I know you asked about entitlements, but I'm going to also suggest to you that the executive branch needs to be looked at. Why do we have, uh, you know, I, I don't remember the exact number. I think we started with six branches in the executive and now we're up to 20-something. And, of course, so you mean, the you president... Are talking about
0: agencies and departments?
1: Yeah, okay. right, right. So, you know, so we should be able to look at the executive branch um, from that point of view as well, and and suggest the, the serious downsizing or even the elimination of parts of the executive branch. For example, my opinion, I would look at eliminating the Department of Education, uh, and if we can't eliminate it or if we don't think it, we should eliminate it, then I, then the negotiation or the discussion should be around what's its purpose. And I feel very strongly that the Department of Education should have no authority to tell states or certainly private schools what to do, and they shouldn't be able to withhold money to get compliance on on educational stuff. What the Department of Education, if it exists, should do is forecast future needs maybe five or ten years out based on the world uh, geography, the world, the personality of the world. And then provide guidance to the states and private institutions that says, hey, over the next five to ten years we need we need folks with these kind of skill sets, with these kind of languages. You know, we encourage you to include this kind of curriculum, but there should be no requirements coming out of it and reduce the Department of Education quite a bit. And there's some others that I could elaborate on as well.
0: Sure, sure. Um, so as far as tax our approach to taxes do you, do you believe tax reform is necessary? If so, what, what would that look like?
1: I do. I haven't settled on, on the, exactly what it looks like yet. I've had discussions uh, so, uh, of types of fair tax. So if I could, I'll suffice to say, I believe in a fair tax system. And what that means to me is regardless of where you get your income, uh, you should be paying into the federal, into the federal government. Uh, A certain amount. And, um, you know, some folks have suggested a national sales tax. I'm not really sure I'd buy into that. They've suggested a flat tax. I'm not 100% sure I'd buy into the flat tax, but a a fair tax that required all Americans to pay into it. Um, You know, again, even if you're getting a welfare check, to be quite frank with you, so that you can see your investment back in the country. Uh, as an individual. And then, uh, you know, potentially there would be uh, more than one flat tax bracket maybe Mm -hmm. would be the right way to go. Um, But if you, if you reduced it to a flat tax, then it would be more predictable for individuals as well. Uh, So that they wouldn't be guessing how much their, their end of the year tax burden is going to be.
0: Right. Yeah. I I've personally been, uh, I, I don't mind the the fair any of the original fair tax um, idea with the the national sales tax but my contention is you can't even think about introducing that without repealing the 17th amendment or otherwise you can end up right. not, I think the last thing we want is a national sales tax plus an income tax uh, that would be well that'd be Europe uh, so definitely don't want to go that I route.
1: definitely don't want that. I, I think I lean towards sticking with an income tax vice a sales tax.
0: Okay. All right. So um, I've got more
1: analysis to do on where we end up with it.
0: Sure. So where do you stand on the life issue? What kinds of legislation do you
1: support? Yeah, I am absolutely 100% pro-life. You can, you can see my a video I did online, so you can hear my passion about it. I've written about it. Um, I've gotten better at articulating it because i want to make sure pro-life folks know that they they should and and i think pro-life folks make this mistake sometimes they make it sound like we're not compassionate for the mother mm-hmm. the mother in a trauma situation is comes to mind you know a, a, a lady is has tra- visited a trauma on her and now she's uh, pregnant and pro-life folks seem to quite often just have a go have the baby attitude. So this is what I will tell you. I think that we as the pro-life folks of the country should be equally concerned with the life of the mother and the pre-born child, regardless of the uh, means by which conception took place, we still have a pre-born child, a gift from God that needs to be cared for. However, in many cases, the mother also needs physical and mental health uh, as she carries this baby to term, and while I am a a uh, self-reliant, don't believe in too many forms of welfare, uh, this is a case where we are we as a nation need to, at the federal level, protect the life, protect the life of the preborn, and therefore, if the mother is mentally unable to care for that baby, we need to have a path of care for that baby upon birth. Um, and so I would support legislation uh, that, you know, preferably recognize life at conception, but recognizing the difficulty of that at the federal level, I would accept uh, legislation up to the heartbeat. Okay. I would not support or accept anything past that. And then uh, then I would well, uh, you... then I would support separate legislation that. Uh, okay, well, uh, I would I just... support separate legislation for the baby. Oh yes, sir.
0: Yeah, I just want to go back. When you say I'm not going to accept legislation past that, do you mean like late term abortion bans? Because they don't go far enough. I, oh, I, no, just, no. Want, I just want to know what you mean no, by that. I,
1: no, I appreciate that. Of course, I would support a late term abortion ban, but my goal would be to get a get a national level. Uh, cultural shift that we are not going to allow pre-born babies to be uh, killed after the heartbeat.
0: Okay. You think there's any way, because uh, I, I think one thing I've noticed is that adoption, there's a lot of red tape. It's it's hard to jump through um, you know, the, the hurdles for adoption. I think a lot of those are there in place for good reason. You want to make sure you're placing babies with good families uh, but it's also extremely expensive um to adopt a child is there do you do you support any um any types of tax credits or tax deductions for uh, people who adopt children
1: i I think I do but the my first uh, goal would be get the federal rules out of it and allow again that to be at the state level and then I think that would automatically reduce some of the frictions right um I'd have to look line by line to see what all the requirements are. But I, I, I am familiar with some folks who have had uh, I, you I know, think, the frictions of going through adoptions.
0: Right. I think I think most but, of the, most of the hoops are at the state level, not at the federal level. I was thinking more in terms of how the feds could possibly uh, to bolster a mentality, you know, a culture of life um, to make to make the adoption um, option easier for people, you know, to, to offset maybe some of the cost.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I would support that. And again, the, once, uh, once we agree that an issue belongs at the federal level, right. And life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, part of our declaration, uh, the declaration, um, defend uh, by you know, put into law in the constitution protected, um, then, then we need to have a federal level response, and so I think the answer to your question is yes. therefore, it would be logical and right to have federal level incentives to make it uh, to make the paths not so cumbersome for adoption or fostering.
0: Okay, um, want to just sorry, shifting gears here, going back, uh, looking at at foreign policy. Uh, you being a veteran. Uh, do you support
1: the drawdown
0: in in, in Afghanistan?
1: I I do. I, I um, I've been looking at and talking about Afghanistan for a while, and I think uh, I think it is time to uh, to get our get our military presence out of Afghanistan.
0: Okay, and what in what instances do you believe uh, it, it would be appropriate for a president to? to uh, send troops overseas uh, to deploy troops uh to address you know uh, whether it's a uh failed state or a, a you know terrorist group um i guess you know ultimately do you think the war powers act is still appropriate for you know giving giving the president a lot of latitude to to deploy troops or or should that be re you know looked at again and perhaps uh Congress reassert its authority when it comes to declaring war.
1: Um, you know, I, I think that this is another case where the balance needs to be struck. I think that the, the ability of the president to react to an emergency and uh, that, that is a national security risk around the world, uh, is still important. Uh, however. I think that what we have done is we've allowed our Congress to not really take responsibility for uh, for a conflict of of this type around the world. And so maybe the adjustment should be uh, a period of time. So the president has the ability to uh, react to the national emergency, and then the Congress only has so much time to then approve the funding of it. uh, And then an additional amount of time to declare war or not. But, the, but we should, to answer your question, we should be at a point where the Congress is required to take responsibility for whether or not the country is going to support that action.
0: Okay. Now, what are your thoughts on immigration?
1: Well, usually when folks ask me about immigration, they're thinking about the, uh, the southern border. So I'm going to separate the two thoughts. Uh, sure. the, what is going on in our southern border is not immigration. It's illegal entry into a sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. That I am completely against. And I feel very strongly that our border needs to be secured and our, and our border patrol needs to be resourced to do that piece of national security. And we should have land ports of entry. On the borders, just like we have sea and airports of entry that are you know, relatively well controlled in terms of who enters and who doesn't enter. Uh, in addition to that, the incentives for people to come into the country illegally need to be shut off. And that includes, uh, you know, food, education, health, anything that somebody can come in um, to the country and get in line to take resources away from Americans that need it. Needs to be shut off. It includes employment, and frankly, I I think that uh, birthright citizen citizenship should also be uh, shut down. Okay. Now immigration. Uh, I I am absolutely for immigration. I think immigration is one of the strengths of our country in terms of bringing other cultures in, and and our ability in this country to partake. Even though in current times you get accused of stealing culture, I, I that that just that just hurts my head. Uh, I have enjoyed uh you know sharing in other's cultures and learning about other's cultures and and that in America is is quite an amazing thing. Um but you know how many immigrants do we need? What kind do we need? What are the metrics? Not money, but what are the skill sets I think that the federal government uh, has that piece of responsibility as well and should be capable of forecasting annual needs, and you can adjust the numbers and the types every year to meet the the demands of the country.
0: Okay. I want to go back to the birthright citizenship for a second because I want to kind of drill down on that a little bit so I make sure I understand exactly where you stand on that. Um, Do you mean birthright citizenship for uh, children of illegal immigrants or or illegal aliens, however you prefer to refer to them as, um, or do you mean birthright citizenship
1: at all? For anybody? Uh, I, I mean, I think the answer is for anybody. You've got to have a, a standard. And, you know, if you're not an American citizen, I mean, you know, the opposite of that is if you are an American citizen and you're traveling abor- abroad, your baby is an American citizen. You register it with the council. You know, I have a child that was born in Germany uh, while I was in the service. Um, but if you're not an American citizen, You know why would we say if you fly into our country, walk into uh, fly into our country legally, or walk into our country illegally? Now that child is an American citizen because they were born on this soil. I just that just doesn't make sense to me. In terms of prioritization, uh, clearly the the illegal entry, the incentive to walk across the border illegally, or uh, um, you got needs to be
0: yeah. Well, you got birth tourism as well uh, right and, right and that's
1: why I say just because you come in legally I, I don't support that either
0: yeah so I, I was thinking more in terms of somebody who say they lived here for 10 years and they've got a green card and they have a child you wouldn't you wouldn't you don't think that child should be uh, a citizen
1: uh, No I don't think so why, why would that child be under the same conditions as its parents? Okay. I just, now, yeah. now, you know, if, if the, uh, green card holder, uh, you know, has married an American citizen, uh, you know, or, or is, or is, uh, dating an American citizen, things change there too. Right. Cause now you do have an American citizen involved.
0: Right. Okay. I just wanted to clarify. I want to make sure, you know, exactly where you stood. So, um, I just want to wrap up, ask you well, two things. One, um, how? Uh, what are your thoughts on how the United States should proceed with China, especially in light of COVID nineteen and some of the, them uh, not being forthright about their numbers, as well as uh, uh, the likelihood that this virus came out of a of one of their labs, uh, not not created there, but was stored there and somehow got escaped from from the lab. Um, so, what are your thoughts about a federal response to China?
1: yeah un- unfortunately uh we're going to have to hold china accountable, and that probably means you know diplomatically and uh and financially and and then that's going to mean tariffs and and other uh tools that the federal government has at its disposal to um to kind of draw as much uh, uh reparations from china as we as we can it's certainly going to take a long time, and it's going to be a, a, uh, a very sensitive topic. I think that we as citizens need to recognize that there's probably a lot of information uh, that we don't have as to the actual origination and whether it was an accident or not, um, and uh, and then just pray that our that our uh, president and the Congress have a measured response that over time levels the playing field again.
0: Okay. Uh, last question we we seem to have a, as uh, well over the last few years we've seen a growing tension between conflicting liberty interests you got the uh, folks uh, LGBTQ folks as well as as those who are you know faith-based um, their 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 interest seems to collide often <laughs> um, and find lands and yeah. in, in, in courts. How do you address how do you think the federal government should address conflicting liberty interests as well as you know protect religious liberty?
1: Well, I, I gotta tell you, I, I don't I don't personally think that there's a conflicting liberty interest here in okay. in uh, in the in the observation that I have across the country. It's mostly Politicians and then these groups, cr- they create the group mindset so you can put one group against the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, in most cases, it would appear to me that the LGBT group is pushing themselves on the religious group, not the other way around. I would suggest that if we treat each other with dignity and respect on a, on a daily basis in, in all aspects of life, uh, then we wouldn't, then we wouldn't have a conflict and just like I don't expect uh, myself or, or any of the folks that I know that, that have a a Christian that, – that live as a Christian, I do not expect them to go and, and push their Christian values on anybody, let alone uh, somebody who may not believe. I don't expect folks in other groups to do the same thing. So maybe if we as individuals don't push on each other and just treat each other right, we wouldn't need a federal government response. Uh, to something like a uh, like the LGBTQ community being put pitted against the Christian community.
0: Yeah, specifically in Congress, I mean the House has passed uh, the Equality Act, which added sexual orientation and gender identity to the uh, c- civil different various pieces of civil rights legislation. Um, and then you've got another bill that's kind of equality Act light, which is um, the Equality Act actually nullifies the Religious Freedom Restoration Act the uh, Correct. Fa- fa- there's another bill fa- fairness for all which has some also adds sexual orientation and gender identity to to the the list of protected classes under the uh, uh, civil rights different civil rights uh, legislation or laws excuse me in the federal code but also protects has a statement i don't i don't have the the bridge in front of me it make some some attempts to protect religious liberty what are your thoughts on adding adding those things to the code
1: sorry about, sorry about that no, that's all right oh, buddy uh um listen i i think you just emphasized kind of where i was going by by legislators even a the state or the federal level, uh, creating such a thing as this Equality Act. They just validated groups to be pitted against each other, and I just think that's bad. There are already laws that prevent us from, uh, from uh, assaulting each other or attacking each other, uh, get interfering with each other's personal or private life. I think those, if those are executed, uh, then we probably, no, not probably, we do not need additional laws that create groups I, I don't i don't have a better way to say it we just don't need additional groups of americans that can be pitted against each other
0: okay uh, that's that's great that's my mindset too i'm just playing kind of devil's advocate a little bit just to draw out tease out a little bit more about what, what your your position no, is on that so uh, i think
1: it's i think it's a very very fair way to approach it it just i i don't want to i don't want to to get more detail, I have to pick on one group or the other. I just, right. I don't want to do that. I just want, I want each of us to live our lives. And then when we interact with each other, just treat each other. Right.
0: Okay. Hey, uh, just, just for our listeners sake, uh, you, your buddy interrupted us just a little bit ago. What kind of dog do you have?
1: <laughs> I have a beautiful black lab. He is five and a half years old. And the story behind that is I was on a veterans, um, a sponsored pheasant hunt uh five years ago and the folks that were putting it together they wouldn't take any money from the veterans but they did do a fundraiser so i bought two uh two tickets and won a uh a, a black lab and he's been uh following me around ever since
0: cool yeah they don't seem to understand you're on a podcast interview <laughs> I I have, no, we, I, we have, yeah, we have three, <laughs> three dogs at home and generally, generally amazingly they behave well, while, while I'm recording it seems like, but uh, there's been times where I've been on other, other calls where <laughs> they end up going off on something they see.
1: Somebody moves outside. He did yeah. that the other day I was doing Facebook live. And so I just said, hi, Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Name, Jack? Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's the, the you know, uh, I guess the pitfalls of working and doing th- things from home. So, hey, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, one final question. Uh, what is your, well, actually, it's a two for question. What is your favorite caffeinated beverage? And two, where can people learn more about your campaign?
1: Okay, so I, I like my coffee ground and black. So I grind coffee every morning, and right now I have a a bag of Verona uh, Street uh, bold. Ah, uh, and I grind they're, it every morning. And
0: they're uh, up they're up in Dubuque, right? Verona Street. Um, I believe that's correct. Okay, all yeah. right. I've seen them at Sam's yep. Club. So all right, cool.
1: Yeah, well, they're, it's it's uh it's very good, and I like it rich and bold. And that's so my wife got me the one that's marked rich and bold. <laughs> And so uh listen, I uh my my campaign website is shaperforcongress.com S C H A F E R, F O R Congress. My phone number is five one five eight five zero eight one zero zero. You know, I've got a YouTube channel and a Facebook channel. I encourage everybody to come look at me and, and that's my last message if I can get it in, Shane. You know, I, I would like to be the representative for the islands of district three. I absolutely encourage every one of you to look at the two candidates for the primary. Understand that there is really a pretty clear difference between the two. And then pick the right candidate. Make sure you pick the candidate. Do not allow the party to tell you who your candidate is going to be. And I look forward to, to seeing all of you uh, getting out to the polls.
0: All right, Way, well, Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. Bye-bye concludes today's episode of the caffeinated thoughts podcast thank you so much for listening if you happen to be listening to this podcast somewhere other than on our website please be sure to check out caffeinatedthoughts.com again that's caffeinatedthoughts.com or you can just google caffeinated thoughts and we'll show up at the top of your search screen also be sure to like us on facebook follow us on twitter sign up for our emails that way you don't miss a single update we uh, would love to also have you subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcast app, whether that's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud, Podbean. We're on all of those. If there's one we're missing, drop me a line at shane at com and let me know which app that is, and I'll see if I can make that happen. Until next time, my friends, take care. Thank you so much. This is Shane Vanderhart signing off. Bye.